ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. more to the minefield where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Episode 3 of season 10, I think. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my long-standing co-host. How are you doing, Scott? I'm very well, Waleed. Thank you. I'm going to begin with a, a, a listener email. Okay. Don't, I don't think we've ever done this, have we? I'm not sure. We, we have been kind of thinking about something like a minefield mailbag. That may yeah. well be coming, but anyway, let's let this stand in lieu of that. No, no, this is not mailbag in the sense of asking us a question. This is just sharing something that I think is actually pertinent to what we've been discussing. Mm. Are you ready? Nice, please. Okay, so after addressing it, it says, In your first episode back this year, you took a moment to celebrate your 10th anniversary. But as you pointed out, the celebration was premature as the beginning of your 10th season is closer to nine years than the full decade. I love this email already. You will be apoplectic with joy to discover there is precedent for this. In 1973, the world's number one police box-themed science fiction show, Doctor Who, opened its 10th season with the celebratory six-parter, The Three Doctors, mm. which united the first three incarnations of The Doctor I know for the well. first time. It's a wonderful I knew episode. you would know this. Fans knew it wasn't the show's 10th birthday. In fact, the first episode went to air only one week after the show turned nine. But we kept it to ourselves because who wants to ruin their own party? Either way, <laughs> congratulations on following in this grand tradition and happy birthday. And it's sincerely signed A.Nonymous. Oh, Unfortunately, it was sent by email, so I know the name of the person. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's the metadata and, you know, all that. All so, that you sort know. of, I mean, I've, yeah, I've, anyway, I figured out the address. A bunch of flowers may well be going. Anyway, that's not the point. Um, his name's Lee, by the way. I can tell you that much. Did we really say it was our 10th anniversary? I'm sure. Well, we, we had that discussion because I think you we, might we, have said something about it. And then I said, I don't I know said about this. I said our 10th year, didn't I? I don't know. But I, what do you think about this practice of selling your anniversary before? Like, because if we're wrong, we're wrong by 10%. It's not like it's a, a, a small matter. <laughs> Anyway, I thought you'd like the Doctor Who reference, and I also was entirely sure you would have something to say about Doctor Who, whether it was huge celebrations or evisceration. It's it's normally one or the or the other. Oh no, I love Doctor Who. I do. And so you said you remember that moment. I I remember the Three Doctors episode incredibly well. Yeah, um, why is that? We are getting way 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 ahead of ourselves. Uh, <laughs> okay. Right. Well, well, no, because I. I have this sneaking feeling that Doctor Who may well be coming up at some stage in our sort of not-too-distant future. Really? Yeah, I haven't had that, possibly. that feeling at all. Okay. But one of the things that was quite lovely for me is my two little boys, my youngest two, were just getting into Doctor Who. One of them loved the 10th Doctor. One of them loved the 11th Doctor. And mm. I was incredibly excited about the prospect of the 12th, played by Peter Capaldi, who I think may well have edged out all of the others as my favorite. There was a... There's a wonderful combination of melancholy, of vocational grit, of menace, and let's call it impishness that all went together uh, in that one figure. So it was just, it was this really nice way of the three of us kind of gathering around a common episode, me trying to introduce them to the structure of the way that Doctor Who kind of actually works, some of the older characters that were brought back. Um, look, it, it was lovely for me. It was sentimental. My boys liked it. I enjoyed watching them watch it. It was good. Well, you didn't disappoint when I mentioned Doctor Who. I knew you'd have something like that to say. So well done, you. Well, and well done to Anonymous will be delighted. Yes, thank you. Um, we have some more housekeeping. Speaking of do, delighted. Do speaking yeah, of delighted. Yes. Uh, so for our first episode of our 10th year, <clears throat> 10th year, <laughs> we, um, we, we did mention that we've got a live show coming up in Melbourne. Um, as it turns out, within like three days of us talking about that, it sold out. So it turns out that you and I, Waleed, are not the only performers in Melbourne coming up to <laughs> perform in front of sold-out shows. Our audience is a little bit smaller. It's easy to sell out when the room's tiny and there's no price. Oh, <laughs> like uh, yeah, yeah. Apparently there is a waiting list, but we're not going to talk about that. So right. okay. uh, anyway, thank you. Thank you for those who have decided this is a worthwhile way of spending your Friday night. Commiserations to those who tried to get in and weren't able, but it's not just going to be a closed room episode. It's not going to be a hermetically sealed vault in which what takes place in that room is going to remain in that room. Instead, if you really want to hear that live recording, 
in front of a studio audience. It'll be going to air at the end of February, beginning of March. We're going to do it over two episodes because we want to include the question and answer and the discussion that follows from it. So um, thank you to you all. We look forward to meeting a great many of you, and uh, it'll be fun to hear how it all comes out on the wireless or on the pod machine. Can I still get my mum in? I don't know if she's booked a ticket. Ah, see, she gets backstage. Oh, backstage. Yeah, yeah, with, you know, cheese and... Olive oh, platter wow. and I didn't, I didn't you know, realize that. The yeah. ABC budget's going to yeah. be completely blown. No, 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 no. We, we have to shell out for it. We've got to bring oh. it in a little, <laughs> in a cold bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, all right. Shall we, shall we get to matters? Yes. So in some ways, what we're doing today is kind of an extension of what we've already done in the first two episodes of this year. But it felt like, because we mentioned it briefly in both of those two episodes, it felt like this, it was a proper extension. It was the right thing to do to devote an entire episode to the question of what various forms of artificial intelligence-generated content, a better way of referring to it as synthetic media, uh, there's a really kind of curmudgeonly, half-literary critic, half-economist, half-Catholic theologian named Hilaire Belloc. Ah, yeah. He was very fond of referring to streams of communication in which the true, the trivial, and the blatantly manufactured intermingled such that they became indistinguishable from one another. He's referring there to newspapers. Mm. But can you imagine a better description of our online ecosystem? An online world in which the true, the trivial, and the blatantly manufactured intermingle. Um, In many respects, of course, propaganda, disinformation, outright lies... This is not new to our time. There are things about our time, however, that are new. And one of them is the ease with which such synthetic media. So let's break down what we mean. We mean the use of artificial intelligence to generate voices that sound almost indistinguishable from the owners of those voices. We are meaning images that are constructed by means of various prompts entered into incredibly powerful programs that then spit out the image requested. We're talking about videos that are, to the untrained eye, or looked at very briefly, very quickly, eerily, eerily human in the way that they communicate, speak, move. And then when you bring some of those things together, especially voice and video, then you have something that's been widely referred to as deep fakes. In other words, something that looks for all the world, like actual video footage of the person in question saying things that, in many respects, you can never quite imagine them saying. Do you want to take anything up at this point, Willie? No. I I would only add that this has been obviously coming for a while. It has been. So it starts with bad versions of it, and we laugh at them, and Mm -hmm. then, of course, realize that it's no laughing matter, because eventually they'll become good. Mm. I think the only, having said I won't say anything, yeah. the only thing I will add is what's interesting to me is how suddenly urgent the conversation's become now that this has happened to a pop star. Yes. Like it didn't seem to be as urgent when it was just, I don't know, Barack Obama or <laughs> Donald Trump or something. Or Joe Biden, as the case may be. Yeah. Or Rishi Sunak or... <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a different sort of inflection here because the, the pop star in question is Taylor Swift yeah. and it's not just that it was a deep fake of Taylor Swift, but I haven't actually seen any of them, but I'm going by the reporting. Was it true they were pornographic? Yep. Yeah, so I mean... That, I, I should that, say I haven't seen them either. So that adds a layer to it as well. But it is interesting how that event, or that moment, has catapulted the concern over deepfakes to, I think, to a new level. Yeah. I might be wrong about that, but I think so. No, I think you're right. And I'm really glad that you took up the invitation. I could, I don't know, was I getting little kind of subliminal messages from you that I kind of felt that there was a little (laughs) something there where you wanted to take us? Look, I think there have been three precipitating factors that have made the conversation about deepfakes really urgent. Number one, as we mentioned in our first new show of this year, 2024 is going to see somewhere around 2 billion people go to the polls, cast their vote in advanced or aspirational democracies around the world, including the United States, Mexico, South America, the UK, all around the EU, South Africa, India. 
Um, some have even described what we are about to see in 2024 as what may well be the AI election. In other words, because of the rapid advances, and this is the second element, because of the rapid advances in AI generative technology, it has never been easier to produce passable, convincing, or possibly just fantastical and malicious forms of synthetic media, that if you throw enough of it, if you allow enough of it to saturate our communicative spaces, then it's not so much that we are duped, that we are persuaded. Oh, my goodness, can you imagine Joe Biden actually recording a robocall that says, please don't come out and vote in the New Hampshire primary, save your vote for November. It's not that people are persuaded by it so much. I don't think that's the real fear, certainly for many political scientists, political philosophers. It's not that masses and masses are suddenly going to be taken in that Barack Obama is really responsible for some vast conspiracy that led to the murder of somebody. It's not that somebody is really going to believe, as the case may be, that uh, a politician in Slovakia was involved in rigging an election. It's not so much that... Are you sure they're not going to? Like, I I know this Mm. is like ancillary to your point, which Mm. is that it's not so much that. But I just think it's worth pausing. We are in an age where just about anything is believable and believed. Yeah. We saw that with, was it Pizzagate? Is that what it was called? Yes, that's right. We see these sorts of things happen. It may only be a small number of people. It might be quite a large number of people in any given case, but it happens. I think we're looking at something really specific here. And that's that, I mean, just to finish the point very, very briefly, the point is that so much floods into the space that it's not so much people can't tell the difference between the true, the trivial, and the blatantly manufactured. It's that they even either haven't got the time to do so because these things float past, they clog up the airwaves, if you like, or they end up being becoming rather cynical that really nothing can be trusted anyway, and so you simply live kind of superficially. I think the point that you raise, though, Walid, is that certainly in some let's call it either extremely fractious democracies or in some political societies where perhaps they don't have the same either fact-checking or the same systems of objective scrutiny uh, that there are in other advanced democracies, that uh, AI-generated deepfakes really could have the effect of swaying an election or really could sow just enough doubt close enough to an election that it really does tip the balance one way or another. There's active fear at this very moment, for instance, that that's precisely what's going to happen in Bangladesh this year because there's not the same online culture of of scrutiny, fact-checking, and so on. Um, So the real issue is that AI generative tools have lowered the bar. They've made the production of this kind of synthetic media very, very, very easy And so the likelihood is for it to simply flood the airwaves and then all these things happen at scale and at speed so that it kind of, it jumbles things up. It becomes very, very difficult to, I guess, find your bearing, to discern your way. But then you've got the final element of what it is that's going on. So you've got the electoral that we may well be on the precipice of the 2024 AI elections. There is the democratization of AI generative technologies so that it's not just high-level actors or people with particular degrees of sophistication that are able to generate these. But then the final is the element that you've brought up. It's striking to me, Willie, that we seem to have so little faith or confidence either in the processes of democratic electioneering or we have so little belief that the outcome of elections could really be disastrous for, say, a polity, for a body politic, that it really could lead to um, systemic forms of, of democratic decline, of the corruption or crumbling of democratic institutions. What's interesting to me is that those concerns, the connection between deepfakes and democracy, don't really strike us as being necessarily harmful or not harmful enough that we should be kept awake at night because of it. But then... But then you have a very particular form of harm that is perpetrated against somebody who stands atop, let's call it, the cultural pyramid, someone who is almost unrivaled in her celebrity, in her cross-generational appeal. And you have a particular form of misogynistic harm 
that is inflicted on her. In other words, it's not just the general harm of deep fakery. It's the specific harm of these portrayals, of these acts perpetrated against this figure. At a time that is particularly attentive to that kind of harm and on a platform that is particularly agitated and activated by that type of harm. Thank you. That's exactly right. You put those things together and suddenly, okay, there's the harm that could be caused to the body politic, but then there's the harm that is caused to this sense of well-being. There's a harm called to agency. And we may well want to talk about this sort of at a subsequent episode, but one of the things I think about Taylor Swift, one of the things that is integral to her image, her narrative, her artistic catalog, uh, the way in which she draws fans into the drama of her own life, is that of agency that she has reclaimed something of herself and for herself. And so by inviting fans into her story, she is inviting them into something that is similarly agentially potent. These people can't do this to me. I'm going to take control of my own narrative, my own story. So much so that her songs, her concert, her era's tour is itself a kind of promotion. It's, it's on scale, a performance of her own agency, of her own story. And, and following that, the Scooter Braun situation, yes. where she's re-recording all her albums that she didn't have the rights to, etc., releasing Taylor's versions, etc. Yeah. So I think what's so interesting here then is that we've got this strange coming together of two really troubling trends. One is the form of misogynistic disdain for an undoubtedly powerful woman. Uh, This is a form of misogynistic propaganda meant to cause her to be seen with a degree of disdain and contempt. It's not dissimilar. I don't want to sort of draw too long a bow here, but it's not dissimilar to the way in which certain forms of cruelty And inhuman disdain can only be perpetrated in the context of war and conflict in the form of sexual violence perpetrated against the women of a particular group, a particular people. There's something remarkably similar here. Uh, This begins as a kind of ideological or political disagreement. And this is something we see then with the conspiracies surrounding Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, or the notion that this is some kind of cultural power couple that's being foisted upon us before they... Uh, before they endorse Joe Biden in the lead up to the 2024. We so, should explain that he's an uh, NFL player who will be in the Super Bowl, who is Taylor Swift's current boyfriend. Yeah, there, there's no couple in the world that is more powerful than these two. It, it would be like, it would be like Michael Jordan and Janet Jackson. <laughs> I mean, seriously, seriously, it's it's Michael a that. Jordan's a big. I mean, that's a big call. Well, I'm not saying I'm a huge Michael Jordan guy. I'm not saying that, yeah. but but I'm saying in terms of his cultural and sporting cachet, this is a monumental. But I think the other thing that we have going on here, you know, Willie, the whole idea of deepfakes has its roots, its grounding in the production of online pornography by splicing the face of a celebrity onto the body of somebody else. Mm. So, so you have all these things coming together that I think highlights for us. It then sharpens, to my mind, two questions. First, what is the particular harm that is inflicted by means of a deep fake? Even if somebody isn't literally involved, isn't physically or actually involved in the saying of these words, in the performance of this action, what happens with this particular form of harm? Why are deep fakes harmful? And then the second related question is what particular harm or what particular danger do they propose, do they present to democratic life? It's a very, very, very complicated issue. One, I think, is more moral. The other is more epistemological. But they are both remarkably thorny, and I think they're imposing themselves upon us in a way that we maybe mightn't have seen coming about 18 months ago. So in the Taylor Swift example, you're you're not calling that epistemological, right? I don't think it's epistemological. I don't think... Yeah, no one, no one I would be shocked if anybody believes that this that, is a, yeah. you know, that, that her hard drive has been hacked or something. Yeah, or that, you know. okay, sure. So what I find interesting about this, maybe this is actually the point you were making and it's, you just expressed it slightly differently, but we react better to the personal and the direct form of harm 
you know, amplified by the fact that there are a whole lot of Swifties who have a kind of personal investment in her. Mm. We seem to apprehend and respond more to that sort of danger or that sort of harm than we do to that which is a bit more abstract. But I would argue in a grand sense, like zooming out, far more serious mm-hmm. because it has the capacity to ruin entire societies or at least corrupt mm. their political and democratic processes Agreed. and so on. Is that just a normal human foible that the concrete will always prevail over the abstract and that there are probably good reasons that human beings operate that way, but that's nonetheless what it is? Or do you think this is a quirk of a particular moment and a particular moment in celebrity, particularly the particular person? So in other words, if it were not her, if it were someone else, perhaps slightly less well-known, but nonetheless a celebrity, it's a different sort of a thing. Look, I think to my mind, there is something singular about this particular example. So you don't think it's a concrete versus abstract situation? No, I do. I do. Let let me just give a two-part answer. One is I I do think that there is something singular which has demonstrated the potential for harm, for let's call it a sense of public violation of a person's agency dignity. It's catapulted it to the front of many people's minds. But what should have been more than enough is the fact, for instance, that many of the same users of 4chan, this kind of debased social media site, it's an epistemological and moral sewer from which sort of all sorts of terrible, terrible things emerge and then spill out into public. You know, one of the really troubling things that we've seen over the last 18 months has been the tendency of users, certain users of 4chan to take video footage So CCTV video footage of, for instance, female witnesses on witness stands and to use that as providing just enough raw material for these witnesses to then be subjected to much the same treatment, uh, either by means of pornographic images or by means of pornographic videos. It's the same means of intimidation, of debasement, of disdain. So that should have been more than enough, I think. But as soon as there's a particular celebrity that's at the heart of it, I think it has the effect of demonstrating the harm far more powerfully. And I think even more than that will lead. You know, we, we tend not to see public figures, politicians, candidates for the presidency or the prime ministership. We kind of think that because they are public in a very particular way, public in the sense of being at the intersection of all sorts of of ideological, political policy debate, that to some extent what's coming to them is kind of fair game. If they're going to be lampooned, if there's going to be synthetic media that portrays them doing ridiculous, ludicrous things, then, you know, to some extent they're kind of fair game. They had it Especially coming. if it's a form of commentary or satire. Or I think that's like that. right. Yeah. But then when it's someone like me, when it's someone that I love, So, for instance, if I can just sort of press the analogy one step further, and I realize that I'm kind of getting to the brink of tastelessness here. But if there was artificial synthetic video portraying, for instance, the abuse of a minor, just because it didn't really happen, it doesn't make the effect of that any less demeaning, degrading, It might make it less morally monstrous, but there there are moral implications nonetheless to that that strike at the very heart of the people we hold precious and that which we hold precious. Even if it's not a particular minor, let's say it's a a computer-generated, non-existent minor, akin to a realistic cartoon... Yeah, I mean, frankly, yes, but if a real person were then used as a model, as all of these AI yeah, generations... Yeah, 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 no, I understand. Are. No, the reason I'm, I'm teasing out that hypothetical is I find, I think that's really interesting because I think you're right, but I think that then takes us into a whole other line of contemplation, which is about the inherent morality of an image. Yes, I think that's Separate right. from its relationship to truth. Yeah. And... The effect of gazing upon that image. 
on the gaze on. Yes, that's right. These that's sorts of things right. which we, we don't actually talk about at all in, in our culture, but it would raise those sorts of questions. I mean, there isn't, incidentally, I'm interested to hear what you think about this. There isn't that great a difference or a distance, I think, from, let's just say, I mean, you're a much more prominent figure than I am. There are certain things I can never imagine coming out of your mouth. There are certain things that I could never imagine saying. I would find them uh, repulsive almost beyond words. If there was, say, synthetic audio or if there was a deep fake that placed certain things that you or I would find utterly repulsive and placed that in our mouths, there is a form of violation there. These are different things, though, because the violation there would be, A, might be personal to me because... I, you know, it makes me feel terrible but that this thing is out there that misrepresents me and it hurts in some way. Or it could be morally or religiously. Kind yeah, of... but there is also the epistemic element. Mm, that's right. Which has to do with the nature of the kind of work that we do, where the epistemic element is important. But the, the hypothetical you posed before doesn't have that epistemic element. Mm, that's right. It's more inherent. So what I think is interesting about the way you've teased this out is we, we tend to think about deepfakes as a singular problem. Actually, it's just the node through which a whole range of problems pass. Mm, I think that's right. Nicely so put. some are epistemic, some might be deeply moral in an abstract sort of sense, some are deeply personal, some might be political, not in a partisan political sense, but a sort of, I don't know, more sociopolitical sense. In other words... I, what we've kind of got to is that deepfakes are the thing that give expression to all of the <laughs> the range of catastrophic problems, civilization-ending problems that the internet has unleashed. This is just the latest expression of it. The, the question I find interesting, and what, maybe we put this to our guest, I don't know, is does the concern about, for example, the Taylor Swift deepfakes end up coming back to or enlarging and informing our concern about political deepfakes with all the anti-democratic and epistemic mm. consequences that fake, that entails, or are they forever and always separate? I'm not concerned about the Taylor Swift deepfakes because I'm concerned about deepfakes and I'm concerned about the implications on human life. I'm concerned because I care about Taylor mm-hmm. or I'm concerned because I care about misogyny mm-hmm. or... I think that would be a really interesting thing to track. I'm going to give you a one-word answer here. No, I'm going to ask for a one-word answer. Sure. Do you think it will inform responses to deepfakes more broadly or not? This was meant to save time. I mean, now he's... Yes. May I place an asterisk on it? No, it was one word, Scott. Sorry. So my answer to your question is yes. You think it will? Okay. Insofar as... See, this is my footnote at the bottom of the page. Yeah, so this is a discursive footnotes count to the word count, Scott. They go to the word count. I know. I think what this highlights, and here we do get into the epistemic territory, what this highlights is that deep fakery is not just a technological problem, which means it can't simply be met with a technological solution. There, there is a degree of moral formation that is going to be required. There is a degree of political education that's going to need, need to be required. There's a degree of technological education that's going to need to be required. In other words, these things aren't going anywhere because the technology will always find a way of eluding whatever safeguards we put up. But insofar as we're examining a whole range of social, democratic, political, epistemic issues that are all kind of flowing through the question of deepfakes, it means that the solution to the problem really can't simply be sheeted home to the platforms themselves. There's a whole other degree of, I think, democratic and moral formation that'll have to take place. Let's bring in our guest, Scott. Thankfully, our guest has all the answers to all the questions that uh, we've so ungenerously plopped at his feet. Uri Gall is Professor of Business Information Systems at the University of Sydney. His research, thankfully, focuses on the organizational and ethical aspects of digital technologies, which makes you, Uri, pretty much the perfect person to have on the show. Thanks for joining us on The Minefield. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Go on. You've been sitting there listening to us just bang on with rubbish for half an hour. What are Shuckling you listening? away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any thoughts come to mind? So I would like to propose a couple of observations. I like the distinction you drew between the ethical, moral on the one hand and the epistemological, although I'm not sure they're necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm, that's that's probably, true, yeah. Um, interactions between them. But in, in terms of the personal versus the collective, perhaps, um, the whole Taylor Swift debacle, I, I think there's something unique about our faces. So, Scott, I think it was you who mentioned before uh, different ways in which deep fakes can work. They can be either text-based or um, voice-based or images or videos. And to the extent that our faces are involved through images or videos, I think there's a unique harm in hijacking or in unauthorized duplications of a person's face. Hmm. Because unlike our words in a written format or in a spoken format even, or our voices, my, my sense is that our faces say something about us that's uniquely individual and personal. And there's a specific moral harm that's caused to somebody when their faces get taken away without their approval. Because our faces say something about us that our words cannot. There's some sort of authenticity that our faces convey that's deeply and intimately personal in a way that nothing else quite has the same effect. Not even our voices? I don't think so. Wow. Hmm. I think we can manipulate our voices to a larger degree than we can manipulate our faces. Oh, we can manipulate our faces. Have you ever played poker? I'm a terrible poker player. Yeah, I've, I've barely played it too, but I understand. <laughs> and to be clear, I've never played it with any gambling involved, but I understand that that's all about masking, sure. manipulation of faces. I mean... That seems right, mm. what you're saying. Mm, I agree. But as you were saying it, I was imagining a situation where my voice appeared on radio mm -hmm. saying something. And I don't know, that would feel very personal, I think. I don't know, maybe I'm starting to sound like Scott here. There's something about the fact that it emanates from breath, something about the fact that it, it comes from within, that so much of a personality actually is contained within a voice, which is not to say you can never be misled about someone's personality, you know, that we all have that thing where someone sounds one way but looks a completely different way. But I don't know, there's something very intimate, it seems, about that. I, I think that there are more cues involved in our facial expressions and yeah. they reveal more about who we are, our identity, our history. You know, they say that you wear your, your life on your face mm. to a degree. And I, I think there's something about this that's, that's unique that I, I completely agree. I would hate to have my voice hijacked by somebody else and misuse for whatever purpose. Mm. That, that's that's not a good place to be. But I think if somebody took my face, mm. there's a degree above. Yeah, there's gradations there. Can I can I just mention very quickly, Uri? I, I I love what you're doing here. I think that there's something about this that's not just profound, but strikes me as being morally right. Perhaps in a way that you don't even quite realize. One of the distinctions that we've seen collapse over the last century and a half is the much older Greek and Roman distinction between the prosopon and the psuche. Prosopon being the mask or the face, the visage. Visage is probably the best way of, of putting it. Uh, this is how we appear. Certain emotions can be confected. Certain ways can be put on or disguised. Uh, prosopon can be used as a mask. Face, visage can be used as a way of deceiving others. But what matters is what's beneath. What matters is the thing that emerges from the heart, the soul of the person. That's the thing that's... Uh, that's unchanged. One of the things that's been so important, I think, in moral philosophy over the last century and a half is that the face is the means by which we encounter the moral reality of another person. And to dignify that face, to treat it with a certain degree of reverence or care, that this person is not one way on the surface and another way underneath, but who they are is how they appear and how they appear is the way that we then interact with them. That kind of peeling off of the first layers, if the first layer doesn't matter, has been, I think, rightly taken to be a profoundly unethical gesture as if we have any way of getting to who a person really is by looking beneath. To take the face of a person, which, again, is a kind of, is invested with a degree of moral significance, the way I interact with a person is by means of being face-to-face. -face. By then taking that mechanism of moral interaction and debasing it, putting it in the service of, say, a fraud or a lie, or placing it in the service of a debased fantasy, 
there's something about that that I think from the very beginning, our intuitions say this is wrong, that there is a debasement that's taking place. And I think to some extent, it takes us wandering around the issue a little bit to realize just what the debasement that's taking place is. It is taking another person's moral reality and placing it in our service, placing it at the service of an agenda that is not theirs, uh, an activity that does not belong to them. Yeah, I think even the type of misuse is, um, it's not irrelevant, but even if it was misused in a less horrible way than, let's say, a pornographic scenario like happened with Taylor Swift, I think the harm is still morally significant when, when our faces are involved. Our, our faces are a reflection of our, depending on one's belief, our soul, our personhood, of who we are. And an image of our face is, um, you know, if somebody steals your credit card number, your PIN code, you can replace it. Mm. Or an image of your shoulders or your elbow or feet or whatever, they don't really tell the story of who you are, of your history, of your emotions, or of your past, of your relationship, of your state of being in the most profound way possible in the same way that your face does. And once that happens, um, even if, like you suggested before, Scott, the, the video gets taken down or some other form of retribution happens, the damage has already been done. Mm. Yeah, the, the credit card example is actually really interesting mm. because even though that might do incredible amounts of damage to you, at least in the short term, you lose all your money or something mm. like that, it doesn't cut to the quick in quite the same way, does it? Yeah. Even though you may lose nothing financially from, or perhaps even gain financially from <laughs> being manipulated in, in an AI context. It's a form of violation that's unique to your face, I think. Yeah, and is not measured in other... There's no currency, really. No, there's a qualitative difference. To measure it. Do I extrapolate from what you're saying, though, Uri, that the personal concrete violations that occur through a deepfake are somehow worse than the epistemic ones? So I think of... Now, I know epistemic ones might involve people's faces as well, but they don't necessarily have to. You could do it with voice, and it could have a devastating effect. You could imagine that in the case of a presidential candidate or a senior politician or even a celebrity in some cases. We're starting to see it happen, you know, with charity campaigns or human rights campaigns where faked images are being used to appeal to people about how bad a situation is in... I think there was... Was it in Colombia the first time I saw this? It was a fake of something? Anyway, you get the idea. The images are not real. They're doctored. They may involve people's faces. We don't know, but they're not known as particular people, they're, they're standing in for a person. It's, a, it's an abstract person, if you like. There's something dishonest about that. There's something epistemically worrying about that. Even if the thing they're gesturing towards is real, there's a deceit that's kind of involved in that. Should we regard that as somehow lesser an offence because it doesn't violate the face, it doesn't penetrate the soul? So you made a distinction earlier between two different types of deep fakes. One that imitates the faces or voices or what have you of actual people and others that create new ones. So I think there's a moral difference between them. So the latter, the example you just used with the charity cases, clearly involves an epistemic deceit of some sort. Um, and there's obvious moral consequences to doing that, but I don't think that, that they're necessarily as severe and profound and immediate. Well, you could manipulate people to go to war that way. Oh, no, but you were talking about charity, so you could... No, make... no, no, sure, but I, that's just because where I saw it, or human rights activism or whatever, but, but you could imagine all sorts of catastrophic consequences. Sure, yeah, 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 so if, if you're extending the, the example that way, then, you know, you can... <laughs> the, the moral pitfall is as, as deep as your imagination, but I think in the case of manipulating somebody's face or body so as to create a situation where they're doing something that they didn't actually do, the moral impact is can be both severe and direct um, and immediate. So when you were talking about the Taylor Swift example before, by the way, um, I was impressed by your level of knowledge of pop culture and Taylor Swift. I, I had no idea who the guy you were talking about was. It's a sporting thing. It's yeah. a, it's a... <laughs> um, kudos um, on that. Um, I think she'll be fine. You know, she's a very wealthy, very powerful individual. Um, Does that mean she'll be fine? I'm a bit sceptical. I mean, in her case, I'm not talking about that, but like, I'm a bit sceptical of this argument that it's fine because they're 
wealthy and successful. I, I, I think she'll, I, not knowing her personally, I think the starting conditions for her to be able to cope with something like this are probably, um, you know, she's probably better off than most other people on the planet. That might be right, but... Rich, but, wealthy, successful people commit suicide because yeah, yeah, of, okay, but like, you know what I mean. Like, things. so if they do, um, just think about the twelve-year-old in a random sure. primary school in a suburb of Melbourne. Yeah, and and I think that's the concern. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's that's the, what you're more concerned. Yes, about. Yeah. Um, because like you said before, this is a technology, and we're talking about different types of technologies here that are readily available to anybody with an internet connection, which is mm-hmm. everybody, pretty much. Uri, I'd like to take you up on the question of the epistemological effects or implications of deepfake technology. Um, One of the things that I proposed to Waleed before, and I think Waleed, I'm not sure if he disagreed with, but he held up a yellow card, let's say, uh, is that even if deepfakes aren't wholly persuasive, even if people aren't sucked in by them, oh my goodness, I can't imagine Joe Biden really saying that, that the effect nonetheless exists I've been reading a a remarkable book by Thomas Ridd called Active Measures. It's the history of disinformation, beginning essentially with kind of Russian espionage. And one of the tragedies of the book is that those who sowed the disinformation, who took a certain kind of vocational glee in causing others to lose faith in the integrity of the world, to stop believing their eyes, one of the effects of that is that it caused those who were doing the disinforming to lose a degree of faith in the world themselves. In other words, they became cynics. They became nihilists. When this much fakery exists in our common spaces, and I do take Hannah Arendt's precondition that, you know, we need something like an epistemologically stable world in order to gather around, speak to one another, act together. I see the horizon of truth as being something that's absolutely indispensable for us and the conditions of our common life. When there's that much fakery around, isn't part of the epistemological risk that it kind of causes us all to become secret cynics, that we all begin to lose just that little bit of faith and confidence so that when somebody is then able to say, you know, deep fake is kind of the new version of post-truth for 2024, creating that kind of plausible deniability where nobody really is able to own up to anything. Doesn't that, even if the deep fakes aren't wholly believed, doesn't that do a significant degree of, of epistemological damage? So, yes. First of all, I, I do think that they are becoming quickly very believable to the point it's going to be almost, if not entirely, impossible to distinguish deep fake from reality. Hmm. Um, so let's just put that out there. But I definitely take your point, and I do think that there's multiple layers of, let's say, epistemological disintegration that we're in the midst of. And we need to keep in mind that the introduction of, of these tools, of generative AI tools, has been brought into a very fertile ground socially and politically and culturally that um, within which they can happily and quickly grow like bad weeds. So social media platforms, to me, are one of the main culprits of, of where we are today. And they've come about some, what, 15 years ago or so, something like that. And the very basic architecture and logic of these platforms is one of mass customization, right? So when you go on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever your platform of choice is, inevitably what you see there, you're the only one who sees that. And this very simple basic fact is a very serious threat to the epistemological coherence that we must have as a democratic society. I mean, just imagine if and this is an example that's not mine. I've heard it somewhere. I forget where, but I think it's telling. Imagine if we all went on Wikipedia to look up a whatever entry, the ABC, and what we saw there was different. Mm. Depended on who you were. Yeah, so the differences are not random. That's a key point. Mm. They're algorithmically manipulated to pander to your needs and wants and interests and biases in order to keep you there for longer and to maybe comment on the entry or send it to somebody else or um, like it or what, whatever it is. And, and that basic fact is 
profoundly destructive to our shared reality. That's even before Gen AI, way before generative AI. Mm. The filter bubble phenomenon, yeah. Yes, and, and then on top of that, but still before generative AI, you have the whole advertising logic of these platforms that have come about in the last more than 10 years now, closer to 15, I guess, where the kind of content that gets promoted onto people's feeds is the kind of content that would make you more likely to stay there and be more engaged mm. with the information and, and again, and share, like, post, whatever it is, with the intent of, of leaving people on the platform for longer so they can be shown more ads. And as they get shown more ads and react to more news items or stories, they leave, um, like, digital crumbs behind them. They generate more data, which then there's a feedback loop. Yes, yeah. yeah. So these two things, you know, they precede generative AI. And these two things alone have already caused so much damage. Mm. And then when you layer on top of this, these um, technologies, the, the harm potential is, quite frankly, scary. Mm. Yeah. And Scott said he didn't want a, a doomsday. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, I yeah I'm, not sure. I'm not sure how you avoid it, though, because these are awesome machines, right? Mm. What I think this will call into play is the human proclivity for confirmation bias, which is a very easy basis on which to critique people's epistemic efforts, right? But at the same time as that, it's probably a pretty important thing that humans have for their own functioning and survival. If we spend our whole lives not using any confirmation bias and searching out examples of counterfacts that challenged our assumptions on everything, we would find life unlivable. Mm -hmm. We probably couldn't get to breakfast. The foundation keeps receding, receding, receding until you yeah. have no footing left. Yeah. yeah, so I don't deny that confirmation bias plays a really important, like, vital role in human life. I think that's probably true, and I refuse to seek out any contradictory evidence. Um, <laughs> but in this age, it suddenly becomes a real problem because what... I think deepfakes will do. This is a scenario I can easily imagine just having observed the way people interact with politics and other things, but politics as an example. I can easily imagine deepfakes are very hard to detect. So the ones that will succeed will be the ones that offer you via the algorithm the things you're already inclined to believe or want to believe. Then in the circumstance where even you do find out it's a deepfake, the response is very easily... Yeah, that might be a deep fake, but it's telling the truth. It's a point. It's not based on nothing, whether there's smoke, there's fire or, you know, whatever. It's someone expressing an underlying truth, even if the way they're doing it. So it gets treated, I guess, the way that satire might or that, I don't know, political comedy might or memes might or, or, or that sort of thing. And if you're in a world where this sort of vital human inclination suddenly makes mutual life unlivable. Once upon a time, it made mutual life possible, I imagine, because we were confirming a certain mythos, I suppose, that, that made us go here, where what it does is allow us to confirm in an impenetrable way all kinds of agonistic and antagonistic subcultures. I, I don't know, because that would be an invincible human instinct. Like, that's not something you can, Scott, you're talking about, it would require moral formation and it would require you know, education on how we deal in the online world. And all this. But what if what we're dealing with is an invincible human instinct in the same way that hunger is? So I, I agree that confirmation bias is something we cannot, we cannot shake it off at will. It's part of human nature, like many other biases that we have. I think that's the constant. What's changed is the the arrival of these platforms, these Ooh. technologies, these awesome technologies, as you call them, and the degree to which they've become uh, uh, such a, a prominent feature of our lives, both personally and collectively. And I think it should be added that the design of these platforms was intentionally um, taken up such as to take advantage of our biases. Ooh. So it's They're not, hacking us. Yeah. yeah, that's quite obvious that that's what's happening. So let, let me give you an example. So there's this theory by um, two psychologists called Petty and Consupo. I forget their first names, from the 1980s. And, and they talk about, um, it's the elaboration likelihood model, which outlines two, um, two routes, routes, depending on where you're from, for how, how people get persuaded. Uh, one is the peripheral route, where 
people look at peripheral cues to the message, like who the individual is, what they look like, do they look credible, are they well-dressed, how long the message is, because length is a proxy for importance or truth, because if they have a lot of things to say that they must know what they're talking about, and so on and so forth. And uh, the central route requires substantive engagement with the merit of the argument. And as you can imagine, it, it's much more cognitively taxing. And people are cognitive miases. Again, that's just the way we wired. We can't shake it off. So we would naturally gravitate towards the peripheral route. And the way social media platforms are designed is to amplify this effect. Because what they highlight is all these peripheral cues that stand outside of the message, like how many times it's been shared, who shared it, what is the level of popularity of this individual or account, and all these different, depending on the platform, all these different like wrappers, if you will, that have nothing to do with the substance of the message, of the content. But that's what gets amplified. And because it gets amplified, we are, as consumers of this information, almost always take the peripheral route, which doesn't require you know, substantive engagement with the, the content of the argument. Scott, can we conquer this? Am I right that we're dealing... Mm-hmm. You're asking us to somehow counter an invincible human instinct. Um, the moral life is always about chastening or tempering an in, a mm. possibly invincible human instinct. What, what I keep coming back to, and this may be just the most untimely, ludicrous way to end a show... Uh, let's put it this way. Just before the dawn of what could genuinely be called a visual culture, there were in certain moral and spiritual manuals from the late medieval period, advice concerning what was often called custodia oculorum, the guardianship of the eyes, the care that's taken with the eyes themselves, knowing, as we would put it now, there's certain things that once you see, you can't unsee them. So you should be prudential. You should be careful about what you see. Because having seen certain things, especially seen certain things that are, say, phantasmical or based in fantasy, projection of, of certain imaginings, they then can have a way of imposing themselves upon reality. I, I find it deeply concerning when so much that is central to the good life, the life well lived, and I don't just mean individually, but together, really is prudential, stopping before we get someplace because the consequences for others can be terrible. It seems as though so much of our online culture is about, well, these things may well, these monsters may well get out into the world and then we can just do our best to rein them in. There are certain things once seen we simply can't unsee. And that's what probably for me strikes at the heart of what's most concerning about the proliferation of deepfakes. Yeah, you're talking radically, I don't know, pre-modern moral language there, Scott. I know. Well, that's every episode of The Mindfield, isn't it? Uri, <laughs> thank you. It's been so enlightening. We could keep going for ages. Um, it'd be great to pick this up at another time, but thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Uri Garland, Professor of Business Information Systems at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is over now. We'll be back next week, or at least something that sounds like us will. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.